first of all, let's, let's, let's warm you up and see how many of you are, are, are switched on with the Bible already. How many books are there in the Bible? Does anybody know? Okay, you all said that in unison. Does anybody know how many are in the Old, in the old and how many are in the New Testament? Did you get that? 39 and 27. That makes 66 in all. Now, here's how it works. The, old, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Does that make sense? Very good. Now, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. That good? There you are. You're now a theology student. And... Who wrote the biggest individual number of those books? The Apostle Paul. Does anybody know how many books he wrote? I know 12 is the answer for everything normally, but uh, actually it's 13. He wrote 13 of those books. And as well as that, we think he's got his hand in two more, which is Luke and Acts, because that's come out of his circle of, um, don't forget Philemon, by the way, when you're counting that little book that's just one page. So we're going to look today and next week at how Paul's theology is expressed in the Scripture. Now, Scripture is one whole unified book and theology, but it's also made up of many books. And we're going to look at that part that, that's been written by Paul, and you'll see how it all hangs together and how it ties in with the rest of Scripture perfectly as well. So, are you ready for this? Okay. Now, we want to start, where would you, we want to start in a very important place. And the place is, what is most important to Paul in his teaching? What is a good jumping off place to understand his theology and what he's really got a hold of and what's happened to him in his life and what he's seen by revelation and so on? So, If I asked you what was the most important thing in your life, have a little think for a moment. Now, the problem with that question is this. The answer that we know we should give and the answer that we know is the right answer doesn't always turn out to be the right answer. Here's an example. Has anybody here ever heard of a guy called Ray Kroc? Nobody. You've not heard of Ray Kroc. Okay, put your hand up if you've ever eaten a McDonald's burger. Have you ever eaten a McDonald's? Who's eaten a McDonald's here? Come on, let's see all those hands up. Well, then you know who Ray Kroc is. Ray Kroc is the founder of McDonald's. Sorry? Not Ronald McDonald, no. Ray Kroc was, was, the, was, was the big business brain behind it all. Now... When he got famous, the press interviewed him, and they stopped him when they said, Mr. Croc, can you tell us what your priorities in life are? What's the most important thing to you? Well, being a good American, he's obviously a good churchgoer. So he said, God, my family, and McDonald's. And then he thought for a moment, and he said, honestly, it's like that till I get to the office, and then it's McDonald's, my family, and God. Oh, dear. We can start out with a good intention of what we know. It ought to be God, our family, and whatever the equivalent of McDonald's is in your life, Burger King or something. <laughs> Food in general for the lads on the front here. But actually, when we get to 
Monday morning or we get to the office or we get to our family life or we get to somewhere else, sometimes like Ray Kroc, we find our priorities let us down. And what we know should be and what we hope would be our uh, priorities tend not to be. So what is the most important thing in our lives? Well, the Bible says that the God set the age or the average age of a person at three score years and ten after Noah's flood. And that, that's been trumped by a few of us, even in this room, I think. But um, nevertheless, if you take the average person of 70 years lifespan, what do we do with those 70 years? What's the biggest single thing you spend your life doing in that 70 years? Can anybody tell me? Working, sleeping, eating, breathing. That is the one you say, okay, you've got me on breathing. Hold your breath for five minutes and you'll see. So you will spend 23 years sleeping. Most of it in your teenage years. You will spend 16 years working. In 70 years, you will spend eight years watching television. Think about that for a moment. Do you know, if somebody said, I'm going to put you in jail or take you hostage for eight years, think of these guys that get captured in these terrible circumstances, like Terry Waite did all those years ago in Lebanon. Five years in captivity. Well, do you know, we make ourselves captives for eight years by sitting in front of a TV. There's a thought, isn't it? Richard Branson's mother used to say to him as a boy, Richard, don't sit there watching the news. Go out and make it. He did what his mother said. Lesson one this morning, do what your mother says. Do we hear an amen from all the mothers? Okay, well, well, if it lines up with the word of God, better put that in there. Okay. So you spend eight years watching TV. You spend six years eating. Six years traveling. Unless you're trying to get the bus in from Forest Hall, then it's eight years. Isn't that right, Becky? Um, you spend four and a half years in what we call leisure activities, all those trips to the, the climbing wall or the, the tennis court or so on. Um, you spend four years being sick, unless you've got a bit more faith about you than that. You spend two years getting dressed, <laughs> unless you live in our house, and then you do that in three years. You spend two. Anyway. Um, and here's the thing, for the average person who is, let's say, religious and believes in God and is a churchgoer, you spend less than six months in the things of God in that 70 years. Isn't that amazing? 23 years sleeping and less than six months giving yourself to the things of God, going to meetings and reading his word and studying and witnessing and so on. Isn't that amazing? What a difference. No wonder Jesus stayed up to pray some nights. That's how you get the time back, isn't it? No wonder we fast sometimes in that six years' worth of eating. That's why we give those things to, to God. So, what comes first in our lives? What's really the important stuff? So, we want to look at what Paul in his teaching and in his theology says to us is really the most important uh, part of life. 
And we find it here in Scripture. So let's get some Scripture up on the screen if we can. I'm going to read four verses of the Bible together. Now, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, if you want to follow it in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And I want to take the very first part of uh, verse, three, uh, verse 3 there, or the second part of verse 3. This is what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, for the Apostle Paul, the most important thing in his life, the number one thought when he, when he switches on his system in the morning and he boots up, is Christ died. Christ died. That is the most important thing that he can have in his life. Now, that wasn't always the case for Paul. When he had his name as Saul, when he grew up as a young man, that was not what was of first importance to him. What was of first importance was other things. Looking good. Putting on a good show in public. Trying his hardest. Actually studying the Bible, believe it or not. Being seen by others to be good. Their opinion mattering. His image, all of that was of first importance to him. But there came a time in his life when everything changed. When he had a personal experience of Jesus Christ, he changed. You know, it's possible to get so far and think you've got there, and yet you haven't. It's possible to hear about God to actually believe in some things, to actually believe in Jesus, to actually want to believe, but not actually get to that point where you really, really are changed when Jesus comes into your heart and mind and life and touches you as a person. That's what makes the difference. Do I know him? Have I met him? Is he real to me every day? And Paul had that experience. And until that point, he wasn't changed. And, and I watch people today in, 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 in different church, in different situations. I meet people, I talk to them. And so often I see this. I see belief, but I don't see repentance. And without the repentance, there isn't the change. There isn't the transformation in life. So it was important for Paul that Christ died. And he understood that only when he had a personal experience of Jesus. And Paul knew that Jesus died for him. Why? Why does Jesus die for anybody? 
Now, I was telling the story in the first session this morning, so if you're in here, you've got to hear this story again. Once upon a time, there was a guy who owned a pet shop. And because work was getting on top of him a bit, he decided to hire an apprentice. And so he hires this young man and to teach him the trade of looking after the pet shop. So on his first day, he shows the guy some books, you know, good guide to feeding animals and so on, looking after this and that. And then he sets him up in the pet shop and he says, I've got to go to the bank to bank the weekend's money. While I'm gone, feed the snake. Well, in this glass tank is a, a snake, a boa. And you know how snakes eat. They, they swallow their prey whole. So this snake is under this lamp in the sawdust in the bottom of this tank, sleeping away there. And so this young apprentice thinking, well, what do snakes eat? So he, he, he looks up in the book somewhere and says, well, snakes eat small rodents. And he wasn't really listening to what his boss had told him after he told him to feed the snake. And he couldn't remember what he'd been told to feed this thing with. So he went to one of the tanks that had white mice in them. And he picked one of these white mice out by the tail. And he dropped it into the tank with the boa. Now, that poor mouse lands in the sawdust in the bottom of the tank. And he thinks to himself, I am in a serious situation here. And he's looking across at this big, fat snake snoozing away in the corner of the tank under the lamp. And he thinks, what am I going to do to survive all this? So he has a brilliant idea. He gets his little nose, and he starts to push the sawdust onto the sleeping snake. And after about an hour, he's completely covered the snake in sawdust, except maybe where his nares or his nostrils are just breathing in some air. But apart from that, there's this pile of sawdust, and he can't see the snake. So that makes him feel a whole lot better. Well, this goes on fine for a while, but the snake breathes in a little bit of the sawdust and sneezes and then wakes himself up. And suddenly, to, this, to the horror of this poor little mouse, this snake's head rises up out of the tank. And he spots the mouse in the corner of, this, of his vivarium, of his tank. And he's starting to, this poor little mouse is starting to get seriously worried now. I thought I had this snake thing covered, literally. I thought as long as I could see it, it would go away and it wasn't there. What am I going to do now? So the snake rears up and starts to move towards the mouse. And at that moment, the owner of the pet shop returns. And he, as he walks past the tanks, he sees this little mouse in the corner. He says, what's going on here? He said, well, I fed the snake like you told me to. So I didn't mean feeding him one of our best mice. We need to sell that to make a profit. And he reached his hand in, in front of the snake, and pulled that little mouse out before any harm could come to it and put it back in the right tank. See, that's what God has done for each one of us. That's what God wants to do for every person. But there is a problem in our lives called the snake. And that snake is called sin. And you see, the popular thing today is to do what the mouse did, try and bury it under some sawdust and pretend and hope it's not there. But I tell you this, sin can't be buried like that. It will come back to get us. And so my second point is this. Not only did Christ die and die for that reason, but Paul says he died for our sins. 
Now, there was this American football coach, and he's got a good young team developing in front of him. And he's kind of keen that they learn to live their lives in a clean and wholesome way so they don't destroy themselves with the fame and money that's going to come to them. And he wants to give them a lesson in this. So what he did was he hired a couple of rough-looking rednecks, a couple of good old boys, if you're into American slang. And he said, now, you boys, I want you to do this. So he sends them off. And then he has this coaching session session with them. And in the middle of this coaching session, these two good old boys walk in and say, howdy, everybody. And they reach into this sack, and they grab hold of this rattlesnake, and they throw it onto the table in the middle of the coaching session. You're going to think I'm prepossessing snakes today, aren't you? And this rattler starts to, you've never seen a room clear so quickly. Those football jocks, they just pushed and shoved. They leapt out of the windows. They pushed out the doors, and they screamed like, like women, and they just, ah, and they all ran. Big, beefy, you know, 18-stone you know, 300-pound guys, they kind of just ran for it. Well, then those good old boys, they picked that rattler up and put him back in the bag, and the coach called them all back. He said, come back here. He said, now, what did you learn from that? And they started giving him some lessons. He said, well, I'll tell you what I learned from this. He said, you can run out of a room quickly. He said, the trouble for all of you is, if I threw a bag of cocaine down there, you wouldn't run out of the room that quickly. But listen, both of them will kill you. See, the problem with the rattler is this. It will kill us. That snake in the tank, what we we call sin, if we don't deal with it somehow or get it dealt with, it will swallow us whole. And there'll be nothing left of us. So understanding this phrase for our sins is really, really important. You know, When the young John Wesley was growing up, his mother, Susanna Wesley, was a fantastic influence on his life. He had a tremendous grandfather who was an amazing evangelist and preacher. And he had a a, a father who was a much quieter but godly man who was a minister in the church. But John Wesley had an amazing mother, Susanna Wesley. And she gave him some advice as a young man. And she used to repeat this to him. Now, I've recast it to make it more modern English. But this is what she said to him. She said... John, you need to know what sin is in your life. And she said to him this, if you want to know if something pleasurable in life is good or not in God's eyes, then take this simple rule. Whatever weakens your mind to think about God or think in a godly way, whatever starts to take away the sensitivity of your conscience, whatever begins to cloud over the presence of God in your life, Even if something just begins and starts to take away your joy and your thrill and your desire for spiritual things, that to you is sin. Because that's what sin will do to you, John. It will take away your desire for godly things. It will stop you thinking in a godly way. And it will take away the sensitivity of your conscience. And the minute you feel any one of those things, John, it's sin and run from it. Just like those guys did from that rattlesnake. Did John Wesley good, didn't it, in his life? Now, 
This is so important to the Apostle Paul. He uses not one, but seven different words for sin. I just quickly want to go through those different words because they help us understand how sin really works. So can we get them on the screen, Dave? Okay, let's put them up. The first word for sin is hamartia. That's the normal word that's used the most time, 221 times, and it means to fire an arrow at the target and miss. It means you tried, but you didn't make it. Remember what Yoda says? <coughs> no such thing, just try. Only do. Or something like that. <laughs> try means you miss. That was Hudson Taylor's great revelation before he went to the mission field. That's the first word. We start off trying, meaning well, but we miss the target. Have you ever tried and, and tried to do something and meant well and still not been able to, to achieve it? Then the next word is this. Hetema. That means diminishing or making things smaller. We, we try to do something. It doesn't work, so we say, oh, well, it didn't matter so much anyway. And it did matter so much. It matters that much to God. But we, we try and say, it's, not, it's only a white lie. There is no such thing as white lies. They're all lies. But we try to redefine it because we failed on the previous attempt. Then we move on to this word, paraptoma. And that means to slip up. Have you ever slipped up? You ever intended something and slipped on a banana skin? It's the same word we were studying earlier in the year. When you tie your boat up or you, and you don't do it properly, and the boat comes loose and starts to drift away, it means like that. We slip up either because we were just not paying attention or maybe we were in a hurry and we didn't tie the knot tight enough, or we didn't take a, pay attention to something in life. But the result is we start to drift away. Have you ever found yourself drifting in life, away from God? Things of God not mattering so much, appetite for the Bible not there, appetite for prayer or witness not there. That's paraptoma. Next one, agnoema, ignorance, not knowing. By the way, that's what an agnostic is. Now, when we used to get caught by the police as little boys for doing minor misdemeanors, setting things on fire, you know, that sort of stuff. I'm talking about whole fields here. That, like, anyway, um, and the police used to say, don't you know? We didn't know the law was that. And the, the local Bobby always used to say to us, ignorance of the law is no excuse. They don't talk to you like that anymore, the police, do they? But they did not. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Just because you don't know the law doesn't mean to say you're innocent. You should know it. And this one means we should have taken more time to, to find out from God. We should have paid more attention. Ignorance is no excuse. We should know God's word and God's ways. We should listen to our conscience, listen to God's word. Parakoye. Now we've got this far. We've tried and we failed. We've uh, got through to us. We've slipped when we didn't mean to, or maybe we just, and then we haven't really bothered to, to, to care to find out. Maybe we've got a bit lazy. And now we've got to the place where we just can't be bothered. We disobey. We disobey God. We know what the right thing is. We go, oh, I'm just going to do it anyway. We do the wrong thing. Then the next word, parabasis. That means to cross a line. Now, Lily taught me all about this when she was little. By the way, it's great to have Lily back, isn't it, from... The playing park was wet. The grass was muddy and filthy. But the tarmac square for the baseball, basketball court was fine. 
So I said to Lillian Karis you can, and Rich, you can play on the tarmac, but don't step off the edge onto the grass. So Rich and Karis are fine playing with their little bikes on the tarmac. Lily, meanwhile, walks straight up to the edge and stands next to it like this. And I turn around just in time to see her going like that with her foot. <laughs> trying it on like that. Three years old, and she already knows what parabasis is. That's what it is. It's inbuilt into us. We see a line, and we want to cross it. There is, I, I used to get kids like this when I was teaching. Every time I said, I'm just going out the room. Don't look in that book on my desk. <laughs> now, if I'd have said nothing, nobody would have bothered. Who's bored, bothered about a boring old book? But if I leave the book on the desk, and I say, don't look in it, has he written something about me in there? Are my, next, are my grades, is my report in there? I mean, there's something that makes me want to go and look in the book. So I used to stand outside the door and watch and catch them. Because <laughs> we're trying to teach people something here. And the final word is this, anomia. We've disobeyed. We've stepped over the line just because it's there to see what happens. Well, I'll, I'll just see. I could tell you some, I, we've got children here, so I can't tell you, but I could tell you some horrifying hair-raising stories, hair-raising stories of people who crossed the line just to see what it was like. It would frighten you to your core. I'm serious. And then we get to this one. We get to the point where we just live without God's law anymore. We just, we do it so often we do it so much, we just, we're on a free fall and there's nothing can stop us. We're headed full on for hell. And Paul says, this is of first importance to him that Christ died for our sins. You see, the problem with our sinful nature is this. It's the snake in the tank. We cannot get ourselves out of the tank. And we can't get the snake out of the tank. So what are we going to do? We can only cry out to God like the owner of the pet shop to come in and reach in and take us out of the tank. And that's why Christ died for our sins. And he removes not only the sins we've done, but the motivation inside to go through those seven different words, seven layers and levels of sin, if you like. He deals with that as well. And if we don't get that motivation dealt with, we're still living with the snake in the tank, even if we're busy trying to cover it up with sawdust every day. And Paul says, he said, to me it's of first importance, and to you it's of first importance to know this, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, what's the, if you were here in the first message, you can't answer this question. What's the most important word in that phrase? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for, we're going through every word now, we'll get there in the end. Actually, you're wrong up to this point. The most important word is our. You see, it's one thing to look at the human race and think, well, they're in problem, they need some help. I'm not a bad person like that, or, you know, they, they certainly need help. This editor of a newspaper, he started a, a, a series going, he wanted to get the, the public to write in with their ideas on things and publish the best ones. 
So he, he wrote this long piece in the newspaper. It says, what's wrong with the world today? And he invited comments. And then gonna, they printed the best ones. Well, the best one was two words long. It was written by a well-known Christian author. And he wrote into the newspaper, in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world today? I am. I am. It's so easy to blame everybody else, to blame the war that's going on in, in Syria and Iraq right, right now and blame the terrorists at work out there or blame the Americans or the British or somebody else for starting it. It's so easy to blame this rich person, this greedy person, this big business, this environmental polluter over there or whatever it may be. But this Christian author wrote in, he said, the problem is not their sins, the problem is my sins. That's the problem with the world today. There's a snake in my tank. How am I going to deal with that? Because if we all dealt with a snake in our own tank, the world would be a much better place. I think that would be true. Amen? But we want to deal with the, with the snakes in everybody else's tank and not reveal the one that's in our own. Now, I was very privileged a few years ago to be a guest at the Christian Institute and listen to an amazing researcher from the USA. And he was telling us about his research with his group of students. They looked into programs that really help people overcome hurts, habits, and hang-ups in their lives. Alcoholism, um, drugs, and addictions, and all kinds of problems. And they looked at these Christian programs. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew, actually, but a really interesting guy. And he said, actually, the most successful programs in the U.S. are Christian programs. They work. Some of them work better than others. And there are common features of all the different programs that different churches are running. And he gave three or four common features. Now, one of them was this. The leader has to be seen to have been a fellow sufferer, him or herself. When people who go to the program look at the leader and say, hey, he's an alcoholic, but he kicked the habit. Hey, he was a drug taker, but he got off drugs. That's when people have confidence in the program. They say, he was as bad as me or worse. And look what's happened to him now. If he can lead this thing, then I can follow in it. If he can show the way out and open the door for me, then I'm going through. And that's what gives people confidence to overcome their own guilt and fear and shame to even start such a program. Well, did you know Christianity is the, the best help program there's ever been? And the Apostle Paul was one of us. He says, I was the chief of sinners. I did those seven words more than any of you. I was worse than any of you. I got up to things worse than anybody should. I persecuted the church. I, I had people dragged off to prison and death. I approved when Stephen was killed in front of me. But Christ reached into my tank when the snake had me in its jaws. He was, you know, making, I was going down in inch at a time. He was getting up to my chest, maybe just a head or an arm left. And God reached in and ripped those jaws open. He got me out of the snake's mouth. And he put me in a different tank called the church called eternity, where the snake has no place. And Paul says, that's of first importance to me. That's what matters most in my life. That's why I get out of bed every day. That's why I do what I do every day. That's why I am the kind of person I am. I never lose sight of this. That there's 
a snake to remove from my life every day. But there's a God who rescues me when I couldn't rescue myself. And I was the, the worst of the lot of them. It's our sins. I'm included. We're all included in this. And the more we can see we're included, the more we understand, the more important that is. Now, my own personal conviction is this. The vast majority of the church does not have a real conviction of how deep and how bad their sin is. I went through a particular time in my life when I was struggling with a whole lot of my inner nature and sin. And I've been a Christian several years. And I was looking for some help. And I read a book by a guy called Bob Mumford. And it was called 15 Steps Out. And it was a commentary on 15 Psalms about how to get free of sin. And as I was reading it, he, on one of the chapters he said this. He said, the Lord was dealing with me. And he said, we've all got to understand how deep and bad sin is in our lives. How all invasive it is. How terrible it was for Jesus. How terrible it is for us and for God. And he said, he said I thought I knew I was sinful. He said, by the time God finished with me, he said, I was praying. I was sitting on the sofa. I rolled off the sofa onto the floor and I wept for hours on the carpet at the knowledge of how sinful I am. The realization of how bad it gets in my life. He said, I look fine to other people on the outside. I was a pastor. But when I really realized the, de the depth this had got hold of me, I was horrified at myself. He said this. He said, as he was there, he, he remembered the words from an old hymn. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. But from the ground, there blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. In other words, in the depths of my brokenness, in the depths of knowing how sinful I am, the blood of Christ touched me. And I rose up from that place into eternal life. There was hope through Christ's blood. That's Paul's theology of first importance. And he finishes with this phrase. He says, Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures. Now, it ought to be adequate to say Christ died for our sins. I mean, that's good, isn't it? We believe Christ died. We believe he died for our sins. And most of us know, even if other people don't know in the room, those sins are there. And what they are. And what they're like. And we could probably all join Bob Mumford on the carpet and cry with him. I know I did. More than once. And... That should be adequate. But Paul adds something that's so powerful, he says it twice in these verses, according to the Scriptures. This isn't just that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, we get insight from here. It lines up with all of this. Remember what I said at the beginning? The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. All of this that Paul has been given by revelation from God and he's seeing it through the Holy Spirit and writing it for us and experiencing it in his own lives and passing it on through the Bible. That is all happening just as the Bible said it would. It's all in agreement with itself. Now, there are people about today who preach Christ died according to my opinion. They say, well, God couldn't be angry 
God doesn't really focus on sin. He can forgive anybody he wants to. That's what my professors told me at university. They said, God can forgive who he likes. What's all this big deal with sin? And we used to argue like this in our lectures. All the other students used to sit there and write down the notes in, in other classes. But in theology, we argued back with our professors. I nearly got thrown out on a couple of occasions. Actually, he walked out on me once. He wouldn't have the argument. He closed his book in front of everybody and walked out. And I stayed there with the Bible open, the book he said he believed in, but of course didn't. See, he, he believed Christ died according to his opinion. But I believe Christ died according to the Scriptures, and that's different. You see, these people taught, and they still teach it in some churches today, that the God of the Old Testament is full of judgment and sending out armies to kill all those people. That, that can't be the God of the New Testament who's all nice and warm and fluffy and kind. And He wouldn't do that sort of thing. He just loves us, and that's all he does. But it's not like that. Yesterday, Sally gave me a job. That's not uncommon, by the way. We were having people through our house to come and see us, cell leaders. We were getting reports from how they're doing in the cells and how you're all doing in cells. And so we spent the day doing that. And at the beginning of the day, Sally comes in and says, you're going to have to go out to our driveway and clean up because somebody has been along with their dog and they've left us a deposit in our driveway. Now, what do I think? Do I think, well, let's just ignore it and hope nobody stands in it. But you see, we've just put a new rug on our floor indoors. I don't want somebody bringing that dog dirt onto my new rug. And you see, God does not want the pollution of sin coming into his presence and into heaven. It matters. I had to go out there and I had to scoop the poop and get rid of that stuff. And then that wasn't enough. I, I got the most powerful cleaner behind the house. I took a bottle of water and I scrubbed that pathway down. The neighbors thought I was a very conscientious neighbor scrubbing the street outside of my house. And I washed that all the way down into the drain. See, that's poor theology. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It matters to God when sin happens. You can't just leave it there. And there are some churches about preaching you can. But we're preaching God is angry with sin. But praise God, he deals with it through the cross and through the blood of Christ. And that's what Paul is teaching us. And that's where his theology starts. That's what's of first importance to him, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Beware of any theology that claims to preach the death of Christ but says the New Testament God is different to the Old Testament God because he's not. It's one true, same, living God. It was for Jesus, was for Paul. It is all the way through the Bible, and it is for us as well. Amen? Praise God. A little while ago, I couldn't get away from this phrase of first importance. As I was waking up in the morning, it was there echoing inside of my spirit of first importance. As I was walking through the day of first importance, in the end, it, it led me to study this passage, and I spent a long time studying this passage first importance. And I kept asking myself, is there a first importance in my life? Is it a true self-importance or is it like Ray Kroc, a confessed self, a professed self-importance that changes the minute I step through the door of the office or something like that? And I've been challenged over and over again, what's really a first importance in my life? 
Because practically and theologically, as good Bible students, you now know, of first importance is this. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again. And that's the turning point and the beginning of a whole new transformed life. And until you've had that experience, you haven't had that experience. It doesn't happen. It doesn't make sense until that happens. But when it happened for Paul, he never went by a day without putting that first in his life. That's what he was living for, and that's why he was living. What's my first importance today? Amen? Let's just close our eyes and we'll pray together. I want to ask you, if you've never made Jesus your Lord, if you've never confessed your sin and said, Jesus, I've done those sinful things and I need you to reach into this tank and get me out of here because that snake's going to eat me otherwise. If you've never done that, then I want to give you a chance right now. And then after that, if you're stuck in the grip of the snake, I want to pray for you too. If you've never asked Jesus into your life and made this of first importance to you, that Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures, then now's your chance. All you've got to do is put your hand up and we will pray with you. Anybody here want to say, yes, Jesus, this is my time. This is of first importance to me. Is there anybody want to give us a chance this morning? As we're doing this, is there anybody who knows that even if they've believed, somehow they're in the tank with the snake and it's got them by the leg, by the foot, by the arm, or maybe it's worse than that. Today there is no condemnation for you only forgiveness and the love and mercy of God. Because if we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means get us out the tank and the snake somewhere else as well. If you know you're wrestling, I just want to, struggling with sin, I want to pray for you. You don't have to say what the sin is. I'm not going to embarrass you or cover you this morning. But if you feel that pressure and that awfulness on your life, then I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to stand now to acknowledge that before the Lord. Lord, I'm just acknowledging this before you. Some of those John Wesley things have happened to me. My conscience has got dull. Your presence is not the same as it was in my life. I'm not thinking straight. I'm not thinking your right way. I'm not taking the same joy and thrill that I used to in the things of God. If the things of God have slipped from first place and something else crowded out, this is your moment to stand. We want to pray for you. Father, we thank you today that in Christ we have someone who is powerful enough and able to reach into the tank and rescue us and at the same time crush the head of the snake. Lord, we thank you today. There is no condemnation. Thank you 
as we lay in dust, life's glory dead, as we come to the end of ourselves and think, I can't do this anymore. I've struggled so hard. God, you're going to have to help me because I don't know what else to do. I've done my best and it's not good enough. The sawdust has come off the snake and it's alive and coming my way. Lord, do for us what we seem powerless to do ourselves. Give us love and mercy and grace through the cross and through your blood to raise us up in a whole new way with a new power and strength to overcome what we never did before. Father, we declare you're the God who forgives today. And by the blood of Jesus, I pray you'll wash every person who's asking you in their heart now. Forgive our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for your power now to come on each person's life. Not a power we've earned, but a grace from above like Paul received. The, the Paul on the Damascus road, the Saul that was there, he had no strength or no right to claim any help from God. But you still met him anyway and changed him. He was the chief of sinners, Lord. And you revealed yourself to him and you changed him and you took away the power of sin in his life. God, I pray you'll do that for each one of us, especially those who are standing today. Take away the power of sin. Cleanse and forgive our sins. And give us a new us inside, filled with strength to overcome where we never had it before. Something that comes from you that we can't do for ourselves. God, I pray for every person standing now. Minister to their lives by your Spirit and touch them. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Wash us anew. Deal with sin. Father, we thank you today that Christ died. Why don't we all stand and we'll pray together. Just reach our hands to heaven and let's just take 30 seconds to say, God, make this my first important thing in life, that Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures. Lord, we just reach out to you now, every one of us. Just pray out loud together. Lord, establish this as first in my life. That you died for my sins according to the Scriptures. Lord, thank you. You died for my sins according to the Scriptures. Let's pray that together. Thank you, Jesus. You died for my sins according to the Scriptures. Amen. Thank you. Let's give the Lord a great clap off.